Hello and welcome to ITU Playcast. This is a podcast brought to you by researchers at the Centre for Computer Games Research at the IT University of Copenhagen. As a centre, we cover quite a lot of ground in games, from AI and machine learning to game design to social science to deep diving criticism and analysis. So the idea with this podcast is to get a few of us together to talk, trying to bring out what's interesting in everyone's work and, and also where our work might come together, sometimes surprisingly so. My name is Dom Ford, and the great people I'm joined by today are Miguel gonzalez Duca, Hi. And Pavel Prabachuk. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so for this show, we're going to talk about three things. Uh, first, whether this is the last console generation. Second, we're going to have a chat about difficulty in games and what that means. And finally, we're going to dive into Soma, a rather terrifying and mind-bending game. So let's just get straight into our first topic. The death of consoles is something that has been predicted for several generations, generations of consoles, not of people uh, now. Sometimes that's because of a perception that PC gaming is simply better. People will come to their senses and realize that fact and PC gaming will become cheaper, more convenient, more accessible. Sometimes uh, that's because of the perception that we've pushed consoles as far as they can go. We've hit the peak of their abilities and so to make any more would be pointless. Others have said that cloud gaming is the console killer, which negates in theory the need for hardware improvements altogether. Now it's not just pundits. Sony's head of games has suggested that PS5 might be the last PlayStation. And so has Xbox's head of games, uh, games marketing about the latest Xbox generation. And there have also been calls for environmental reasons to make this the last generation. So I think we have two questions here. First, is this the last generation? And second, should this be the last generation? So, Pavel, I know you have a PS5. You managed to get your hands on one. Yeah. Uh, are, you, are you looking forward to, to the PS6? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, give it to me if it's possible right now. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking, of course. Uh, I, um, I am looking forward to uh, PS6 in a sense that I'm looking forward to something new in tech. Uh, whether, it, whether it's going to be a, a box under my telly or something completely different that I can't even envision at this moment, I don't really care. It can be something that surprises me. Uh, but I would like simply something new, a new a new hardware solution. Mm, doesn't have to be, uh, you know, just a new box. What, uh, you say a solution, what, what like problems are there, do you see? Have, have we not hit the peak of what uh, no, of, of, of what technology of can do in consoles? Nah, of course not. Of course, not. I mean, like, imagine this. Uh, like, the simple test would be, right? Okay, run a modern game, and ask yourself this question: Is this a photorealistic graphics? You might not be a good person to answer, or I might not be a good person to answer these questions because we are trained to, you know, look at computer graphics and 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 somehow we scale it to what we know is possible but ask a layman is does this look like reality to you and does this is this simply photorealistic is this something that you can take for a movie and the answer is simply no i mean the current graphics uh, some some elements yes some i don't know some some moments with leaves in The Last of Us 2 <laughs> look most yeah. like the real forest. But then I've seen the horse, the horse, and I've seen the people, and they they look great, but it's not photorealism. So first of all, that's that's one uh, one peak that we still uh, yet to uh, achieve. And the other thing is just like that. It's so simple. Like, do you, do you still still see pixels on your screen? Even if it's 4K, yeah, I do. So we still need some higher resolutions. You have a discerning eye. <laughs> I, I mean, I do see them a little bit, but I do see them. I'm from no, the it... generation of, I don't know, 8-bit and 16-bit computers, and the quest of my life is not to see the pixels. So I'm waiting for <laughs> the new the, the, the machines to hide the pixels from me. Yeah, I'm still waiting. <laughs> Take the pixels away. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. like... Uh, I was, I mean, I was a, I was a kid when it came out, but I'm thinking of like Ocarina of Time and uh, and uh, Mario 64, and I think I remember 
the kind of uh the reviews when it came out that was like oh it's like photorealistic graphics games oh, look like real life now yeah. And it just reminds me of that, how in every generation it's like, we, well, I mean, we couldn't possibly I, I, make graphics more just, realistic. Let me just add one thing, Dom. There's a, there's a cool anecdote that was told by uh, uh, Scott Warshaw. I think Warshaw, I'm pretty sure this is his name, but I'm not sure if his name is Scott. It's a, it's a classic game designer from the mm -hmm. Atari 2600 era. He designed games such as Yars Revenge, the infamous E.T., and also um, uh, the Indiana Jones games. And he, and he, in, in he, one of his anecdotes, he, he says that uh, Steven Spielberg saw this game and remember, this is Atari 2600 games, <laughs> yeah. like as simple as it gets, right? And Steven Spielberg, when he saw, I think, I think it was Raiders uh, of the Lost Ark simply, That's, mm, that was the I name of so, the game. Yeah. And when he saw this, he was just like, wow, it looks just like the movie. So I mean, even back then, people had this 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 mm. feeling. If you scale your expectations right, you might have this mind blowing feeling that this looks just like reality. But my my litmus test is: ask a layman, ask mm. someone who never played the game. Does this look like reality to you? And you will be surprised to learn that nope. I see. Yes, and I. I would like to, to to take you up on this on this idea of, of having a layman be the one who eva who evaluates. I, I remember listening to to the Rooster Teeth podcast quite a long while ago, and they were discussing uh, one of these technology shifts that we were talking about, which is the use of face capture in games. Um, mm. I think one of the first examples was El L.A. Noir. Uh, this detective mm -hmm. game in which you you were trying to identify whether, whether people lied or not. And isn't that, isn't one, that where press X to doubt comes from? Yes, yes, that is precisely where press X to doubt yeah. comes from. And they were telling that like uh, someone was playing this game on his console on the sofa, like uh, he was playing it in a very ca casual way. And then uh, his parents came and they started watching this this game as if as as if it was a movie, even. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I would. I would get the impression that uh, even the layman may may per, may per, per, uh, perceive these these improvements as as very realistic, you know. Mm. Um, mm. I, I I don't have a reason to doubt this. I'm just saying that because I mean this uh, this game has very realistic anim face facial animation, mm. but apart from that, it didn't look that realistic. If you went to the I'm I'm pretty sure that if this person just took their car and started to roam virtual LA streets of this game, this their parents wouldn't be as impressed. It's it's so, definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. yeah. So so the 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 problems that you think will will get solved uh, by these new pieces of te technology. Are they then like sim like simulation oriented, like more more realistic uh, cities, more realistic foliage in forests? What is your impression? Uh, I mean, it's 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 the, the the most the simplest thing is that basically the graphics is better, and this is what we uh, that we see first. That's obvious. But apart from that, you have some more. Uh, subtle elements that are also graphical in nature, but uh, but more complicated from the from the design perspective. So, for example, if I, when I saw when I first time saw uh, big crowds in Hitman Absolution or Assassin's Creed mm. games, this was mm. something that really impressed me. And yeah, it's Assassin's just, Creed was a big one for me in that yeah, yeah like yeah. the first one. So yeah. things like crowds. Things like, uh, for example, uh, the level of detail and the level of interactivity. For example, again, to to um, to mention Assassin's Creed, it wasn't a successful uh, game, but it was very ambitious game. Assassin's Creed Unity was one of the was the first open world game where I was able to enter, like I would say, twenty five percent of buildings, which was mm. it's a huge 
shift in paradigm when it comes to design of open world games because we 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 just learned to to take for granted that everything is closed in these cities yeah and uh, and here all of a sudden like 25% of homes that I can just enter them and look at them that was that was quite shocking and i think things like that so the level of detail of simulation the 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 level of graphics i think this these elements are very uh, this is something that we still have a lot to do uh, if we want to achieve the the goal that is photorealistic graphics. And I still think that this is a goal for a lot of uh, yeah. designers, not for all of them, and it shouldn't be for all of them, but for for many of them, this is the goal. That is mm. definitely true. I, I, I have heard that some of the criticisms that people have uh, of Cyberpunk 2077 Besides the fact that the game was was shipped in a in a in a very uh, quote we say broken fashion, uh, was that the 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 way the city itself is simulated is quite poor. Uh, that is one one of the criticisms that I have heard. Yeah. Even though uh, the game does an amazing job with this ray tracing and with these very yes. photorealistic graphics, people lose the immersion precisely because of the way the city is simulated. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think uh, cloud gaming changes this at all? Um, as in, you know, especially as internet gets more, let's let's assume it gets more stable, reliable, and and faster, um, which is not not necessarily a given. But let's assume that. Do we all just need a a very basic, uh, a very basic console whose only purpose is to essentially connect to a Google Stadia and then and, and Nvidia now? If, I think that's what it's called, yeah, um, or any of these streaming services. GeForce Now, that's your thinking. What you're thinking? GeForce Now, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, I, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I tried several options. Uh, I tried Stadia. Tried GeForce Now. Tried Xbox Cloud. If it's called that, I don't even know if it's what, what exactly is it called. Oh, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, Microsoft <laughs> solution. <laughs> and uh, for me, it, it was a, a basically GeForce Now for me was working perfectly, yep. whereas the other solutions didn't work that well. But then I saw my friend at my friend's house that for him, Google Stadia was working perfectly. So one problem with this is that they, this, this with cloud services at this point, of course, this is the, this yeah. is a proviso at this point is that they are so, so much, they, so that they rely so much on some very specific aspects of your infrastructure that you, that you can't, even know like what it is because you're just buying in the internet from the provider and that's it. So like for me, for example, Microsoft solution doesn't work at all. I have audio uh, cracks and, and a lot of uh, uh, latency problems and so on. Why? I have no idea. And I can't, I, if if I wanted to use it, and I, I don't really need because I need it because I have the Xbox anyway, but mm-hmm. but if I wanted to use it, and if I really was dedicated to solving this problem, I wouldn't even know how to start to solve this problem, who to ask, who is to blame, and so on and so forth. So I, I think it's a bit of an issue, but someone might say, rightly so, that this is a transitional problem. This is a new technology mm. and so on and so forth. Before we move on, I want to. I think it would be remiss if we didn't talk about like the 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 environmental thing that I hinted at. Where, yeah, um, I don't I don't know anything about it in detail. I, I don't know if either of you do, but I I read briefly that I think the the Xbox Series X S, uh, one of those at least, um, and the PS Five, uh, and so the hardware versions are something like twice as uh they demand twice as much energy than uh, the ps4 and the and the xbox one um and then also you have cloud gaming which is kind of well documented for its uh, especially if we want to bump it up to 4k uh quite well documented in its kind of uh environmental drain so i i don't know if, if either of you have, have read anything about that um or if you think that that's you know uh urgent enough of a reason of course like the 
climate emergency is extremely urgent but whether this is like where we could focus our focus our efforts whether it's like we could make a plausible demand to end cloud gaming even like is that something we should be going for or is it a question of uh of scale of where we put our efforts of uh solutions the the only comment that i have to to add to that is that i feel that when when you buy a console and you use it you get a pretty direct relationship with the amount of resources that you are Mm. wasting or not wasting but using in, in general and i get the impression that whenever you we use these streaming services not only for gaming but also say netflix or or mm. spotify we are definitely missing this direct relationship with the amount of uh, resources that we are using and that is something that worries me in a way not i i wouldn't advocate to ban it of course but I, I I think it's it's great to maybe to keep to keep people as informed as possible regarding yeah this is using as as many resources as you using your your PS4. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think it's only in the last couple of years even that uh, a, a decent amount of people have become aware of you know how much energy stuff like Netflix uses, and especially more recently the. Uh, we could probably say even less socially useful stuff like Bitcoin and, and NFT art or whatever, how much that, how much energy that uses. Uh, I, but I, I, I agree. I, th I think the main thing is to kind of have this, you know, break down that barrier where currently you watch Netflix and it perceive, you know, to your perception comes out of the ether and has no impact on anything. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's something that needs to change. I, I do agree that I think it's a new argument that we did not take into account before. And that's for that I applaud this, uh, that this entered the discussion. Because uh, mm. typically when we were talking about new generation and we were talking <coughs> about new graphics and so on, we never thought about it in terms of uh, the pressure on environment or... We just when whenever people talk about uh, talked about uh, electricity that these machines are using, they were <clears> thinking <throat> about additional costs, and that's it, uh, economical costs for the household. Mm. And I think it's a it's a I, I totally agree that this is this has to be taken into account, and it's good that this is a part of discussion because it puts more pressure on the producers to create their machine to to make their machines more eco friendly. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not sure where, where did you get these numbers from? I remember that there was, there was a digital foundry test of power consumption of these new consoles. And it was much better than twice. I thought it was even like almost okay. the same as, as the previous consoles, which I thought was very impressive. Of course, the problem is that currently we don't have content that pushes these consoles mm, far mm. enough so maybe if you have you know a late uh, um, a late ps5 game in 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 three years it will push the game the, the console much further and and demand more so that's for sure and i i, I think that they are better than than what you what you mentioned mm. uh and yeah, the I, last I, thing is also I, we have to remember that I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, you, no, you go on, you go on. I was just going to say that the uh, yeah, I, it was one article I found, and it was uh, the numbers were from before the consoles were released, so kind of yeah, pre information yeah, like that. I mean, I just, so, yeah, uh, as I said, change. Digital Foundry uh, made uh, made some tests, and, uh, mm -hmm. and they were quite impressive. Uh, I mean, the, the the biggest problem is, of course, PC gaming. PC gaming is power hungry as as hell, and uh, and the, this is this is where where the power is is just wasted, mm. because most yeah. of the PC setups are not optimized in this regards, and that's yeah. that's uh, that's a bit pro a bit of a problem. But also one one thing that we have to remember <clears throat> is that when we talk about this energy usage, I mean. The amount of the of the hit to ecology this energy usage makes depends on what 
how do we get the energy? And so if you are using your console in a completely eco-friendly world where all your energy is from renewable sources and yeah, you know, so yeah. on, like it stops being a problem, to be honest. So it's a, it's also that, that it's also a deferred problem. It's, it's, a, it's not a direct hit on, a, uh, on, a, on ecology. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think we should move on now. Um, so I think we're going to talk about difficulty next. That's it. So difficulty is something that we can all relate to when playing games, I think, uh, in terms of what types of, of of things that we find difficult. So I suck at puzzle games like The Witness, for instance, or or in, or in how much difficulty we like. Um, some people find Dark Souls to be just needlessly punishing. Uh, others find it, like me, captivating and, and, and quite beautiful. And on top of that, Difficulty is a question that's very much in the public debate. So every time from software release a new game, for instance, there's a huge should there be an easy mode debate that, that reignites. So I thought it'd be interesting to, to talk about this a bit uh, because it's also something that both Miguel and I work directly with. Uh, for my part, I'm writing a paper with a colleague from Copenhagen University about kind of what difficulty means, how it relates to the meaning of a game, kind of an aesthetics of difficulty, maybe if we if we can if we can go so far um and as i understand it miguel works with adaptive difficulty building systems which for example become easier or harder depending on on how well you play um so maybe let's start start with that so do you want to kind of sum up a bit about your your research miguel yes yes sure um as you were saying i i work on a field in game ai in general called dynamic difficulty adjustment which essentially consists, as you were saying, on, on adapting the content of a game in such a way that it is no, not frustrating, as in too difficult, nor boring, as in too easy. Uh, These techniques of dynamic difficulty adjustment have been implemented in games since forever. Uh, one, one example is uh, in Crash Bandicoot for, for, uh, for the PS1. If you were failing uh, one of the courses too many times, the the, the obstacles became slower, uh, making the game a little bit easier. Mm. Uh, but since more or less 2004, 2005, uh, the 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 field of or the question of dynamic difficulty adjustment got gathered more traction in the research community, in the game game AI research community. And ever since we have been using tools from artificial intelligence through tools from probabilistic modeling to try to tackle this question, right? To try to first measure what players find difficult and then to adapt the game according to that. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and so I, I, as, as I was saying, I come at it more from like the uh, I guess artistic aesthetic kind of side is like what does difficulty mean, um, and and kind of the reason, the um, kind of the reason why I started thinking a lot about this, and uh, I'm not I'm not sure to what extent you guys have have uh, have read about this debate. The whole should there be an easy mode debate? Well, that's kind of what sparked this topic for me. Yeah. Um, because as someone who who really enjoys Dark Souls and from software games. Um, the problem was so there. There are kind of these two sides on the on the should there be an easy mode debate. There is the uh, no, there shouldn't get good kind of kind of side, and then there's the um, difficulty is an accessibility issue side. Uh, that's obviously uh, generalizing uh, and simplifying it it too much, but those that's kind of the broad ends of the spectrum where one side is like it's your game, you should be able to do whatever the hell you want with it, whether that's you know cheat to the final boss, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and the other side, which kind of just says, you know, the whole point of the game is to get good. It's to, you know, the kind of this this maybe overly overly romantic notion of like you know overcoming the struggle and finding finding the beauty in that. And the problem was while for me that while the kind of get good side, there are kind of in the discourse, the worse side, very gatekeepery, and I have a lot of sympathy for the accessibility uh, argument, but at the same time, I couldn't shake that feeling that there was something inherently meaningful about difficulty. And it was really just, a, so I kind of started writing this really just as a way of thinking 
through this issue you know why would it matter if there was the option to go to easy in dark souls when i could just exercise some self-restraint and and not and i think part of it is because um it's exactly that thing i would have to exercise self-restraint that i don't really have i think in a lot of these games i lose to the boss four or five times and i'll just be like nah screw it i'm gonna put it on easy mode whereas you know i played Sekiro and uh that i it took me I think about four straight hours of fighting the final boss to to finally beat it, and then the feeling after doing that was was kind of like no other. I I listened to you and I agreed with everything what you said, but at the end I think you kind of conflated the games being easier with the games containing an easier mode. Yes, and these are two different things. Uh, the argument is that. Sekiro or, or Dark Souls could be exactly the same games called normal modes, but contain, a, I don't know, spectator mode or whatever, something akin to what was used in Uncharted. Uh, yeah. You know, the, you, you get the point. So how the, the ending of your argument, how would it, how does the existence of an option of a, of a, of a playthrough how does it change change that? Yeah, I think that, and you're you're completely right to bring that up because that is the real sticking point. As as like, why is it a problem if there's the option at least? You know, uh, surely that is only you know more options is only a good thing. And the only thing I could think of, and and perhaps it is just me, but I don't think it is that it, it's that point that I I would take the easy mode occasionally. I wouldn't persevere with the struggle for right. that long to do it. And perhaps there is something meaningful in that. Whether you know whether it's worth it still is uh, is another question entirely. Maybe it's you know maybe for the sake of accessibility that's not worth it. And I I would be completely uh, completely open to that conclusion. It's you know it's not a paper we've uh, we finished writing yet, so it's definitely still much worth still still something we're thinking through. Um, but yeah, it, it's that idea of uh, I think there are two things. I think there's yeah that first point of if there were an easier mode, I and probably a lot of people would would take it and therefore kind of deny ourselves that in a sense. The second point to make there is, um, and this is where it gets very into the gatekeeper communities. But there is there you could argue there's a kind of a shared experience that's then gained if the game has one quite difficult difficulty setting then there is this kind of shared experience where you know that everyone who's beaten the game has been through those same challenges. Yeah, but I mean, come on. I mean, if the game has <laughs> two or three modes, it just means that you still, that it, the, the set of all people who experienced it is just distributed into three sets. So you can ask, oh, uh, uh, did you play Sekiro? Yeah, I did play Sekiro. Oh, did you play the normal or easy? Oh, normal. Oh, wow, oh, you, you're my man. Uh, let's talk about it. Uh, <laughs> and oh, you played on easy. Oh, okay. So tell me about it. I, I mean, like, I don't see that. Of course, yes, the community is not as unified. But come on, it's not like everyone is an island all of a sudden. You can have a <laughs> you can have a shared experience still. Have you given any thoughts to this idea of, of how uh, having dynamic difficulty adjustment on the back working to, to make the game easier for you, how, how that impacts these affordances that the book talks about? Do you think mm. it limits the affordances of the game? or it, I, I, I am under the impression that it would give the player even more affordances, players that, of course, uh, don't have mm. enough skill to, to complete the entire game or, or things like that. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly going to answer the question, but I think it's a really interesting idea in that I think there's a perception that it would take away mm -hmm. agency from the player. I Like, for instance, if I play a game with adaptive difficulty and it suddenly makes it easier for me, assuming it tells me this, or I can tell it by the health of the enemies or whatever, then I would actually probably feel quite insulted by the game. I'd be like, "No, no, just give me a couple more attempts. Give me a couple more attempts. Like, don't, don't do this to me. I'll, I'll, do, I should decide when, you know, if there is an easy mode, I should decide when I should go to it." So I, I, th I think there's that. Um, so I would kind of see adaptive difficulty as the game maybe deciding too much for me 
in in these kind of contexts in a game like Dark Souls, let's say. Uh, certainly not in all games. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wonder, and I wonder what you think. I wonder if you thought about that, Miguel, like how, yeah, the kind of um, effect on the player and their perception of the game when the game is changing the difficulty for them. That is definitely something that that has been studied and that is is quite uh, pervasive in, in in the research in general. Uh, there is this gen this general impression that when the players found, find out that the game is adapting the difficulty and making the game deliberately easier, as you say, they definitely feel like uh, the way they describe it in, in a book called um, the, what's the uh, A Game Designed Vocabulary, which mm, is, yeah. I think, a book that we read, is that the game starts to feel muddy in a way. Mm. Uh, and yeah, like I at, at least in, in my research, I have fo I, I have focused, of course, on very simple games, on on puzzle games like Sudoku or 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 things like that, in which in which uh, players I would say are very casual about it, and they are, for example, trying to find a Sudoku that takes five minutes to solve because they are mm -hmm. they are waiting waiting for an appointment or things like that. Uh, Sorry, uh, yeah, I was going to jump in there because the word casual came up, which I think is an interesting one, because uh, I think a lot of this, uh, what we're talking about, kind of gets to um, hardcore versus casual. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. One interesting, and I don't know how much I agree with it, but one, Jesper Yule has kind of an interesting distinction between hardcore and casual players, where it's essentially exactly as you described just there, Miguel, that the casual player uh, is one who kind of, expects the game to fit into their life rhythms. So I will play this while I'm waiting for an appointment, but I'm not going to go out of my way to play Sudoku. Um, the hardcore player is the is the one who will, you know, I'll set aside an evening, I'll turn the lights off and have, uh, make sure the atmosphere is just right, get this, you know, give, you know, sort of treat this game as it, as it deserves to be treated, that kind of, that kind of thing. It, it's where you, as the player, kind of... Um, submit to the game rather than making the game submit to you in a kind of way mm -hmm. of speaking uh i'm sure yes but puts it better but um yeah so i'm i'm, I'm wondering what you think of that because I, I would think of like then for the casual player adaptive difficulty sounds wonderful because it it allows the game to fit into their kind of daily life better mm -hmm. um but still giving them the kind of challenge that's that's nicest for them for the hardcore player i think i think would maybe feel cheated by adapted difficulty you know they, they would want to put it on the hardest and see if they can beat it kind of thing mm -hmm. in, uh, in in that same distinction don't you think that the hardcore gamers would be the ones that would like absolutely refuse to turn on easy mode like i get the impression that easy mode is in a way including the car the casual gamers but i I still think that the 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 ones that are very hardcore at it would be would yeah would assume this this idea that they yeah. they just simply won't that they won't submit to the game as you yeah. were saying. Yeah, and I think that I think that's where it gets into gatekeeping a lot of the time in the thing. It's mm -hmm. like no, there shouldn't be an easy mode because I don't want casuals <laughs> to enjoy this game kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know obviously a pretty uh, apparent position. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to just mention something uh, before I forget. I think that when we when we employ this perspective of adaptable uh, difficulty, then I would say this is the moment where I think we do risk uh, not having any shared experience. Because when you went through a game and I went through a game, I have no idea how this game adapted to you and how this game adapted to me. How mm -hmm. and if we didn't play it, you know, you know the point. Then yes. I, maybe we went through very different games and we don't even know it. That's a, that's a bit of a trouble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for but, this... but that that is still to then say that the difficulty holds meaning in the game because if, yeah, if difficulty yeah. if I mean, difficulty was meaningless, then course, it wouldn't matter. Of course, uh, but, but I, I assume that the, having a shared experience is something that people, mm. one, one of the aspects of, of yeah. that people cherish when they talk about the games. But uh, to go back to this uh, difficult, easy, casual, hardcore, I think 
like there are, especially currently, I, I agree with Jesper Yule's um, idea that you, uh, I think, quite uh, correctly summarized uh, that, you know, being hardcore gaming means that you try to somehow um, make your life fit the game and not the game fit yeah. your life. And, but there are so many currently, so many very short uh, uh, game, uh, games that do not take any chunk of your life and you can fit them anywhere you want, such as Super Hexagon, that are at the same time like crazily difficult. So, mm. uh, so, there, so I would say that there are many casual games that are very arcade-like in nature, high-score-based games, especially with many modern indie mm. games are like that and that, that 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 that's why i wouldn't like to say oh hardcore easy sorry hardcore difficult uh, casual easy yeah i think that's uh, i think that's uh, an excellent point there um in that you know it's uh, in that distinction i would play i play chess casually i would play mm. it on the bus against a hard computer right. but it's still against a computer who i lo- who i'm losing to 90% of the time um, I think that's probably the same with stuff like yes, yeah, Super Hexagon, or I think I had it with Candy Crush, where you know for different monetary reasons that kind of yeah, becomes very, still, very of difficult. I mean, yeah, but absolutely. it still becomes very difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- there is always a point in those kind of games, actually, like thinking about you know those kind of games where you you plateau or hit a wall because you're not paying. Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah. I do lose interest eventually um, if I can never beat a level. But you're completely right to say like I'll I'll, I'll play it for. I actually have a sort of a nervous, uh, I would say, I wouldn't say nervous breakdown, but kind of like a hard hard discussion between me and myself whenever I play a mobile game. Like, (laughs) is this the moment I should be trying more? Or is this the moment where I I am just signaled that I should pay? I hate this monetary systems because of that, because they create dilemmas like that. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I feel that that is that is definitely the language that is that that is used in 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 dynamic difficulty adjustment research in general. We are always trying to maximize engagement in some way, and I feel that we we would like to believe that our systems could be applied, for example, in in uh, educational games or in games mm. for rehabilitation, things like that. But of course, by maximizing engagement, we are we're essentially aiding these systems that are trying to keep people hooked. And yeah, if and you can subtly tweak the difficulty invest. so it becomes just a bit too hard, right at the bit yeah. where people are likely to, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Best of intentions and all that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if I like the idea of maximizing engagement. It just like sounds fishy. It's kind of like someone who just like stay, stay, come on, come on, don't go, yeah. don't go. Yes, it's yeah, like yeah. What, what, what do you want from me? I mean, yeah, I just want yeah. to play a game. It just like feels really weird. And at the same time, I mean, Dom, you were saying that uh, there is a question about how difficulty, you know, um, affects meaning. Maybe there is. An important meaning uh, in in the experience where you just leave the game for two months, deciding that you can't ever overcome this difficult part, and then coming mm. back to it. Maybe this is an experience. And if we just focus so much on maximizing uh, uh, yeah. the, uh, the the you know the the continuity yeah, of the experience, yeah. we lose that. Yeah, we kind of assume that. Uh, if a player closes the, the app for a week or something, they mm-hmm. will never come back yeah. when this is so weird. Yeah. 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 I guess this, this will, this will sound like I am washing my hands in some way, but uh, <laughs> uh, the focus of my research has been, has mostly been in, in trying to um, in a sense, build a model of the player and find out which parts of the game they find easy or they find difficult and try to target a specific difficulty. Of course, this mm. is in, in, in the vein of trying to maximize engagement by hitting the right spot, the, the sweet spot of difficulty, but this technology can, can be applied for, for mm. targeting specific difficulties, including very difficult levels or including very easy levels. Uh, yeah. mm. Do you see this technology uh, as something that should be used only as an aid 
for the actual sessions of you know people playing the game as it as it as it is finished and sold or do you think that this can be a, a design tool that can be used for example during a beta testing that ends up you know in people shaping a game in a given way that it's later sold without these tools I, I think it, it, it can be used for both, really. Uh, right. Usually these uh, dynamic difficulty adjustment uh, techniques have two main co components. One component that is driving a, a modeling of the, of, the, of, the, of the player in general. Something that is modeling the player in some way, right? These modeling of the player can be very useful for the designers to find out which which parts of, of the game are being too easy or too difficult, yes, as a design tool. Mm. But once once you combine this model of the player with an optimization technique that is, driving, that, uh, that is trying to maximize engagement or that is trying to target a particular difficulty, you can, you can ship it as a part of the game, as a technology that is working inside the game. Uh, I think it, it, it has those two affordances, those two uses. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. I have two points to put to you, Miguel, mm -hmm. since you've reminded me. Um, yeah, the first one is, so you're talking about this sweet spot of engagement. Are you basically talking about flow? Is, yes. is that the elephant in the room here? Yes, that is the elephant of a, yeah, that is the elephant in the room. And uh, that is uh, one of the papers that get, that is usually always cited in the, in the dynamic difficulty adjustment mm. pay, papers, this idea that you're presenting a challenge that matches the skill of the player, mm. right? Because I mean, I think there's, uh, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you know the criticisms of it, but I mean, you know, as as as, as Pavel was talking about earlier, these games that you continue to play even though they are too difficult and you never win. Like I continue mm. to play chess on the bus every time, even though the computer smashes me every time, because it's just it's like struggling and seeing how well I can do is still mm. enjoyable. So kind of in the flow model, that is too difficult for me, and yet. That's still probably my, you know, my peak engagement in that game is when it's too difficult for me, not when it is just difficult enough. I kind of would get bored if I just narrowly won every game of chess. That's a good whatever. point. Yes, yes, that is that is a good point, and I I feel that that is pretty much on the hands on the hands of both the player and the game the the designer, right? Uh, Yes. As as you say, some games are intentionally more difficult, and that is the reason why yeah. they have more value or or more me me mm. meaning. Yeah. So you, you kind of see it, not yes, the words I, in your mouth, but you kind of see it as a uh, a tool for design rather than a a kind of goal of design, maybe. Yes, it is definitely a tool. For, yes. I'm super curious. I just uh, uh, what would be the games for you guys that just turned you off with the difficulty that the games that you, if, if, if you ask about difficult games, this is what comes to mind that I've, I've just tried and I, I'm not ever going to go back to that because of difficulty. I think for I think... me, it was uh, the witness. I ended up just looking up every uh, puzzle solution. Right. Uh, Cause I, I was kind of interested in the world and the story a little bit, but, um, and it's an interesting game for, for a number of reasons, but I, just could not do the, and it made me feel so stupid like just not being able to just right. i just could not yeah. fathom the puzzles and so i just looked them up yeah. and, and got through them so for me that would that would be a kind of game where that just turned me off of its difficulty completely i i definitely enjoyed games like hollow knight for example which are notoriously quite quite difficult but I think there are two types of two types of games that I have found just uh, way too difficult for me to solve because I just lack either the mechanical skills or because I lack the patience or or the uh, yeah the the psychological state I would say. The first one was Cuphead. Uh, I think I got up until the third island at some point in Cuphead, and mm -hmm. then I just stopped playing because I was unable to beat any of the bosses. And the second family of games would be maybe horror games mm. those to me are very difficult because i i usually get scared fairly easy and i definitely need one of these easy modes in which i am able to to go through the yeah. 
the game without feeling like I am going to die every time I face mm, a monster. Right. Um, mm. I think I'm going to take that segue and, and yes. let's move on. <laughs> because in the last section, we're going to be talking about Soma. Um, released in 2015, Soma is the sixth game released by the Horror Extraordinaires uh, Frictional Games, probably most known for the Amnesia series. Um, so if you don't want spoilers, uh, this is the point where you pause the podcast because from now on, we're kind of, I think we're probably going to assume you've either played Soma already or are happy to have major plot points revealed. Um, so just in case you're not familiar with it I'll, or haven't played it in a while, I'll do a brief roundup of the plot of Soma. Uh, so you kind of, in Soma, you play as Simon, who after a car crash in 2015, agrees to undergo an experimental brain scan to try and fix his injured brain. And immediately after the brain scan, uh, so you play as Simon, and immediately after the brain scan, you black out and you wake up in the year uh, 2104 in an underground, uh, underground, underwater research facility called Pythos 2. Pretty soon, you also find out that you are not exactly human anymore, maybe. That experimental brain scan allowed for Simon's mind to be uploaded and reproduced. So you actually play as a walking diving suit with Simon's consciousness kind of jammed in there. In addition to that, you discover that while you were gone, a mass extinction event happened, leaving the inhabitants of Pathos 2 as the only survivors. After talking with the disembodied Catherine, your aim is to reach the Ark, a black box with all the scans of Pathos 2 personnel living in a simulation. And then, of course, along the way, a lot of spooky stuff happens as you go. The really interesting bit is the kind of the sci-fi mystery. Yes. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe let's go into that. What what kind of do you did you find so interesting about uh, about the sci-fi of the game? Um, yeah, like for me personally, and and this will be a big uh, uh, some big recommendation for those who never played somehow. Uh, I would say that uh, as a philosopher, I don't normally expect works of art to surprise me when it mm. comes to philosophical ideas. Typically, they just take ideas that I know from uh, philosophical literature and do something interesting with it. Sometimes they present it in an, in a, in an interesting way, and that's the best I get from, from works of art. I... And, and here, I would say this was the first moment, uh, first time I remember uh, for since since I don't know when, I'm not, I'm not saying ever, but since I don't know when, when I actually kind of changed my philosophical approach mm. to something because of a popular art work and not because of a philosophical paper or a book. And that's okay. that's why I've, Soma is important to me, I would say. And what happens to me is that I basically, up to this point, I was very much a believer into the uh, hard version of upload uh, theory, the idea that you can basically scan your brain, have a functional representation of your brain mm. and the function model and to shorten the argument become immortal because of that because of that yeah because yeah. you can basically save yourself somewhere and then just transfer yourself to new yeah which is kind of uh, the uh, bodies the, the kind of premise of the game's goal with the arc right it's like put everyone's brain scan in this box sent it out to space even though every kind of uh what do we call them? Uh, meat sack human, you could say, uh, <laughs> yeah. dies. Even though every body dies, um, yes. these brain scans, and that is considered, uh, at least by Catherine in the game, um, as the survival of humanity. Even though, kind of, yes. the the main character, so the main character Simon, kind of grapples with it a bit, which I think is kind of you know the stand-in for the player grappling. Is is this really humanity living on? You know that that those mm -hmm. kind of questions, yeah. 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 But in, in which way in particular did your per, uh, perspective change, Pavel? So you said that you were a hardcore believer on this, on this idea that you could download your consciousness to a computer. Well, did it, yeah. 
I know the arguments against it. I know the critical arguments. I know the arguments that were made also by other writers, uh, for example, Stanislav Lem of Solaris fame. I will be happy to provide this a quick argumentation of his uh, down the line <laughs> if time allows it, yep. mm-hmm. uh, which is which is very good for Soma's discussion. But my point is that I knew all of this, but for some reason, the experience, the actual experience of I can yeah. I can pinpoint it exactly. The moment you do the second scan in the game, that is the moment you have to move to a new uh, robotic body. That the will big be, diving that will suit enable, that lets you go down. Yes, the, a new yes. diving suit. And yeah. this moment when you just do the scan and you realize, okay, when I if I was this person who was doing the scan, I would be just, my experience would be, okay, I'm starting the scan. The scan is done. And I'm like, okay, so when 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 can I, when do I get transferred to this new body? And the answer is never. Because there's yeah. there's no such thing as a transfer. It's like the easy, the only thing is, there is, is a copy, creation of a copy. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, we use this metaphor of moving files on your on our hard disks. But we never move anything. We just copy files and delete yeah. files. And this is what, what happens in Soma. We copy yourself somewhere. So from your point of view, nothing happens. You don't feel transferred yeah. at all. And then we have to kill you. And then this will be the moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, which mm. is, it's so, I would say, visceral in the game. It's so, like, the first-hand experience, the... The, the feeling that, okay, this is how this would have felt like. This is completely anticlimactic. This is completely not yeah, what yeah, I expected. Yeah. And the, I knew that, but at the sorry. same time, it made me emotionally more, and it, it somehow made me understand it better because I felt as if I lived through this experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something that's brought up in the game and in a lot of the discussion that... Um, I don't know if I'm just misunderstanding. So they often talk about the coin flip. Um, so like at, at, at the very end where it's uh, uh, Catherine tells you that you are transferring your consciousness to the Ark, but actually you are just copying it and then you just wake up in the chair as the Ark launches off and you're at the bottom of the sea yes. alone, basically. Um, and it's kind of like you lost the coin flip, but I, d- I never understood that kind of metaphor in the game because it's that as far as i see it that that kind of let's say original consciousness like just persists it it doesn't stop and then the consciousnesses get mixed up and then they randomly get assigned to one of the the entities it's like so basically i i, I don't see where this element of luck comes in in terms of where your consciousness lands i, I don't really understand that i'm not sure if i'm just mm, yeah being stupid here <laughs> some i i mean i don't understand that in a sense that I don't see what exactly is the intuition behind yeah, this reasoning. Exactly, yeah. But but the point is that this is this is not the fault of the of the of the writers of Soma because this idea was floating around in philosophy of upload. People were okay, like, okay, if okay. you if you just destroy the original quickly enough, this this is fine <laughs> somehow because it doesn't create. Mm. Uh, this this double uh, consciousness uh, and and I, that that's 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 not the, their own idea. That's interesting really? that it comes from philosophy then, because yeah, as I saw it, it, it kind of just seemed more like a metaphor of like you have one spirit, and if you kill yourself quick enough, the spirit has time to like get out and get into the new. <laughs> yeah, thing. I mean, it's it, this. this the, the, there is something about that, but it also, I mean, some people might believe that okay, maybe consciousness is a, this very weird type of object that just can't be multiplied and whenever it is multiplied just loses its essential property of being unique so we had so it it has to be unique something like that i'm I, as i said i'm not I defending yeah. this because i never mm. saw this argument very clear but i've seen this around i mean if i may i will i will just hit you with this stanislav lamps version i think that because i think it explains exactly this intuition some people have it his version from his book dialogues is that there is a person 
who is basically sentenced to a to a death sentence and uh, a friend comes to him and tells him that okay i have this new technology uh, the idea is that let's just copy you now and then when you when you're dead tomorrow we'll just you know uh, uh, resurrect you from this copy of your mm. uh, in this case it's basically the whole atomic structure of his body so we, we are making a copy of atomic structure of your body when you're dead tomorrow we're just going to resurrect you and the moment this story is told this way he feels fine he feels kind of relieved but then this person tells him oh and just in case anything goes wrong let's resurrect you before you're dead like before they actually sentence you to that, because we already have a copy, we can just produce you before they kill you. And then the moment you tell this story this way, people, people intuitions completely mm. flip completely. Mm. And they're like, oh, it, but it won't be me. So, so in this first case, the fact that you are destroyed before you are resurrected somehow makes people you know, feel mm. better. And the reason for it is simply dreams. We are our, uh, we, we have this, uh, the, I mean, not dreams, but the fact that we switch off our consciousness every day. And yeah. we have this experience of lapses of existence. We, we do not, our consciousness does not work for several hours a day and we are resurrected every, every morning. And it could be, a, a, so it's kind of like that. <laughs> and that's, and yeah, I think okay, that this yeah. intuition plays a huge role here. That's interesting, because um, the, the only angle I thought of with that was um, the fact that there's no, no transfers and only copies is kind of kind of feels difficult to uh, to swallow because it's like it, in a sense it like commodifies humanity uh, in that you know it's the kind of like the thing like your consciousness is not unique, your body is kind of disposable. Um, and so it kind of yeah it makes that into kind of a commodity or like an object that yeah. can just be replicated and 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 moved here and there um so that's kind of the only thought i had about it that was kind of yeah kind of difficult to swallow um because it kind of yeah it really gets to like what consciousness and what humanity is and especially what it is if it can just be copied and replicated somewhere for me it was more like I've just realized that nobody's happy in this scenario. Like, imagine that I am the person who is being copied. Like, what is the, like, why am I supposed to feel relieved? Like, I'm still, I'm still here. I have a question for you, Pavel. Um, what do you think about the, like, do you, do you think it is like philosophically possible? Like, does, does it even make sense to, to, to have this idea of downloading your consciousness, your consciousness to a computer? Do you, do you think it is feasible in a way? Like, do you think it makes sense? I think it has to be feasible. Like, honestly, <laughs> otherwise we don't know what consciousness is because uh, the reason why, why people started to think about it is not, just pure science fiction it's a simple argumentation we know that we have our brains have structure and they have some kind of matter right that this that they are structured from so and there's nothing else either it's it's either it is either our consciousness comes from structural properties of the brain or the material properties of the brain yes. now if the if it if it if, if consciousness came from material properties of the brain, then it's a bit weird because our material properties, at least on an atomic level, for example, they, 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 uh, they are you know, exchanged as we live. So it would be, so we can't have you know, personal identity based on that. What, what is identical through our life is some core structure in our brain. And, but this core structure is by definition an abstract object that can be replicated and can be saved on different, uh, in different mediums. So it's, mm. it's made total sense that it should be possible. It's just that for whatever reason, our intuition, even though, I mean, you go through this argumentation, everything checks, but then you have this scenario that is played in Soma or in Stanislav Lem's novel and you're like holy shit it's not me it's just a copy of me 
So how do I preserve? The question is, how do I preserve identity? Where, where is this identity magic comes from? Like, if it's not the body, if it's not the structure, if it's not matter, if it's not structure, what is it? That's the problem. Yeah. The game does kind of suggest there's something pretty important about the body. Because, I mean, isn't it that yes. all, the of the, uh, all, of, all of the consciousnesses that are kind of in non-humanoid uh, vessels, let's say, are kind of just go a bit crazy because their brains can't kind of deal with the fact that they can't, they, they can't deal with their new embodiment, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that that reminds me of the first interaction that you have with a mm. with a consciousness inside a robot in Soma. Uh, do you remember it? I think you you have to kill it in order to go up to talk to yes, Catherine. Yes, yep. In yes. yeah, yep. yeah. So so yeah, there's a question on that. On that, did you kill every robot that you found? So every time that you could unplug them, did you do that? I think I did most of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did as well. It just felt. Kind I think of... I was killing them, feeling that it's actually uh, been been, uh, you know, for uh, for the better or or it's, it's for the better, yeah. Yeah. So did like did you kill uh, old Simon? Yes, I definitely yes. killed old yeah. Simon, thinking this is like, come on, this is this is fair. this is no life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because it was it reminded me as well of like. Uh, just and I don't I don't know how related it could be, but like the kind of whole thing of organ or limb rejection, like when you get a transplant yes. and your your brain just kind of rejects it, uh, sent like you know spams it with antibodies. Or I'm I'm not a doctor, I don't know how it works, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so I, I wonder if like the same kind of thing could happen if you if you moved my consciousness into like a table, and if it's just like my consciousness is furiously trying to reject this embodiment, <laughs> but just can't really do anything. I guess that the main, the, the the simplest criterion that has to be met is that the new vessel that you are moved to has to have the ability to uh, to embody the same structure. So it has to have yeah. this the at least the possibility of having the same number of different states you your your previous. Yeah, may, maybe not a table, maybe not a table, but you know, <laughs> I mean, fancy table. Imagine a fancy table. Fancy exactly. smart table, yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, well, yeah. I I don't see. I mean, like if if we believe in the idea that, and I I think that the most important aspect to to for 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 anyone who listens to us and who does not know philosophy of mind, the the most important aspect that I want to uh, get across is that this is what we. Soma entered a, a certain of a certain discussion that is very sci-fi like and very very shocking and talks about I mean the one of the biggest problems people have people want to have people want to be immortal and this is our current idea of how to be immortal let's let's not beat around the bush the, the yeah. bush that's that's what it is but the point is that all this comes from actually very sensible assumptions that if you once again if you assume that there is nothing more then your body and the structure of your brain, there's no, I don't know, spirits or whatever, yeah. then it should be possible to, to re recapture the same structure in a different uh, uh, body type. And if, if body type is not compatible, then just you, it means just that you have to go down a notch. And at the end of the day, if you look at the atomic structure, as I said, then should, everything should be fine. You can just, you know, reproduce atomic structure if it's possible. Mm, mm. So I, was, I think that this is a very important uh, thing to remember that it's not just, you know, uh, that, that it's not just a dream. It, it's a conclusion for, for a fairly, I would say, widespread assumption. What do you think, though, about these um, these philosophers that are talking nowadays about embodied intelligence? Do you think uh, our consciousness is bound to the way our body is structured, not only in terms of our brain, but also in terms of like our entire structure? Or what do you think about those hypotheses? Well, I do agree with that. But the question is how... Uh, how uh... 
how important is it for me to remain me? Like, I can imagine that because of the fact that certain functions come from the fact that I am embodied in a, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So if I change my body, the experience of my, con- the, my conscious experience will change significantly and it might change the me as a result. I agree to that. Mm-hmm. But then again, of course, I mean, I can imagine a lot that can happen to my consciousness, but I still feel that I, you know, remained me. So mm-hmm. I would say that the question is how, you know, how essential is it for a personal identity? And um, maybe it's not essential. Maybe it is important for, for, you know, the feelings that I would have, but it, maybe it's not essential for personal identity. Mm. I think the other, um, the other interesting thing it does is that it kind of, it feels very normal as a player uh, of games to kind of inhabit a bunch of different bodies like every every different game you yes. play you're inhabiting a different body very and kind of what soma does is it it makes that mechanic very weird every time you wake up in a new body even though you actually have exactly the same affordances throughout the game it kind of makes it feel very weird that you are waking up in a new body yeah that's a great uh, point i think that's a great point yeah which i think and is I kind think of very interesting yeah yeah, and I think that it makes it weird because the whole story and the whole philosophical argument that it makes is that there is no overarching additional uh, consciousness that can jump mm. from one body to another. And But in mm. the game, you are this kind of consciousness. So basically, the, it feels weird because the whole point of the game is that you are playing this game. You know how to feel to play this game. The trick is that there is no such a thing as the player in real life. Mm-hmm. In real life, your position as a player doesn't exist. This is the whole point of the game. There is no position like that of a jumper. Yeah, yeah. The player, um, the player acts as like the bridge between all these different consciousnesses. Yes, and then yes. when you think about it, you're Which like, exactly, doesn't exist. There wouldn't yeah. be one. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 these these precisely speaks to. To why these experiences are are maybe a little bit more unique to games. Uh, experiencing something yes. similar to to playing Soma, I don't think you can get it by watching a movie or by reading a book. There is there is something about about this idea of jumping bodies. Yeah, mm. I would mm. absolutely agree with that. I I would say that I mean if there ever was if. if uh, uh, an uploads technology for the people. I would say playing Soma should be a requirement before doing <laughs> this procedure. <laughs> like, see what it is, and then make a more educated choice. Nice. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I think mandatory playing of Soma is a good point to to end it on there. Um. <laughs> Yes, we're for, gonna make for, we're gonna make some amount. Want to do an upload? Let's let's. Okay, let's All right. it's a prerequisite. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah. Um, thank you for listening to the first episode of IT Playcast. I'm sure the format and everything else will change a lot, but we'll see how we go. And uh, yeah, follow follow it on Spotify or wherever it ends up being. This outro will be much better uh, organized <laughs> in the future so there we go thank you and uh and good night thanks thanks